speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 52 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we are going to look at episodes 8 and 9 of season 4 of The Adventures of Superman. The Wedding of Superman and Dagger Island, the first of which is going to focus heavily on Lois Lane in one of the few episodes that really acknowledge Lois as Superman's girlfriend. And in the second episode, we're going to follow the Daily Planet crew and uh, some cousins on a trip as they go on a treasure hunt to earn their inheritance on Dagger Island. But before we get to that, I've got some feedback to address from friend of the show, Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on the Man of Screen podcast, episode number 48, in which I covered King for a Day and Joey. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Well, certainly King for a Day is a fun Jimmy Olsen comic book come-to-life story, and Jack Larson does fine work here, especially with his boyish nervousness around the Baroness Tina Damore. I think I mentioned in a Facebook comment that Tina Damore sounds more like a stripper name than a Baroness, although, since the show was clearly aimed at kids at this point, that's probably not what the writers were going for. At the end of the episode, the Baroness also seems somewhat like the comic book Lois Lane in her single-minded pursuit of a man she perceives as powerful. She drops Jimmy like a hot rock when she discovers the real Prince Grigori, as Lois in the comics often, in those days, seemed mostly interested in Superman because of his powers and ignored or disdained seemingly powerless Clark. Joey, as you mentioned, seems a weak kickoff for Season 4. Although it is family-friendly in his sentimentality, there were, for me, a couple of odd points in this episode. First, Joey seems an oddly pedestrian name for a thoroughbred, given that they are often given names based on their parentage, like War Admiral or Son of Manowar. Second, Lois gives Clark a lot of guff about, what are you, some kind of expert on horses? Clark should have shot back that he was raised on a farm, as we saw at the beginning of the series in Superman on Earth. I did like when Clark suggested that maybe Superman picked him for a friend because, although Superman is fearless, Clark is afraid of everything. I took that as a kind of wink to the viewer that this is the point, so that no one will think that Superman and Clark Kent are, as is often noted, one and the same. And I am looking forward to your coverage of The Big Freeze and The Snow White Superman. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvenny. First off, Dave, I'd like to thank you for your continued support and your continued feedback. And I want to address a few points. Yes, Dave did, uh, in the Facebook group, mentioned that Tina DeMore sounded more like a stripper name, which I found pretty amusing, and... Yeah, she does kind of drop Jimmy like a hot rock when uh, she discovers the real Prince Gregory, and it is kind of reminiscent of the way Lois would react when comparing Clark and Superman. And I'm going to agree with most of what Dave wrote about Joey, and Joey is right about the oddly pedestrian name for a thoroughbred. And the only explanation that I can kind of come up with is that perhaps Alice gave Joey his name, otherwise he might have a name like War Admiral or Son of Man of War. It is kind of odd, you know, they're talking about all the horses' names in the race, and then there's Rover Girl, and then Joey. You know, just, it is an odd name for a horse of Joey's stature. And as for Dave's point about Clark should have 
reminded Lois that he was raised on a farm. You know, I have never thought of that. And honestly, I should have. But, you know, I'm pretty sure this series left, uh, like most of the comic books of that era did as well, kind of left behind Clark being raised on a farm in Smallville. And really never mentioned it again once he's in Metropolis as Superman. And yeah, I'm with you on the Clark afraid of everything and Superman afraid of nothing thing, Dave. It does make for a nice contrast. And now who would expect that fearful Clark Kent is actually the Man of Steel? Dave mentioned at the end of his letter that he's looking forward to the coverage of the big freeze and the Snow White Superman, which has dropped at this point. And I have received feedback from Dave on that episode. And I'll wait until the next time Bob Fisher's in the house to read that. So... I would like to thank Dave for your email, and I would like to encourage any one of you to also send in an email. You can reach this show at manofscreen at gmail.com. All right, so I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a podcast promo. Then I'm going to come back with The Wedding of Superman. Hang around, folks. everybody, Magnus here. I do a show called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, wherein I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But let's cut the crap, alright? Mostly I spend most of my time talking about comics because, honestly, comics are my first love. So, beginning in March 2017, I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to be joined by Rebecca Johnson to talk about Harry Potter movies. Three. Three Harry Potter movies. Rebecca Johnson will be joining in to discuss The Sorcerer's Stone, The Chamber of Secrets, and The Prisoner of Azkaban. But that's not all that's going on. Also joining in is Professor Allen to talk about the three Chris Nolan Batman movies. Yes, indeedy, we're hashing through Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Six episodes, six movies, two guest hosts, one regular host, which is to say me, Magnus, and the fun starts on March 7th, 2017. Only at twotruefreaks.com or iTunes or whichever obscure Japanese webpage that syndicates my show without my authorization for some reason. I don't really have a problem with that, you understand? It's just its kind of weird. That's all I'm saying. But whatever. Six movies. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Batman Begins. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. The Dark Knight. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And The Dark Knight Rises. You got that this mega-series is starting in March, right? Just making sure. Welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into our coverage of The Wedding of Superman. Original broadcast date was May 12, 1956. Writer was Jackson Gillis. Director was Phil Ford. Guest cast was Julie Bennett as sometimes Mabel. Doyle Brooks as Mr. Poole. 
John Cliff as the Thug, Milton Frome as Mr. Faraday, Dolores Fuller as Lorraine, and Nolan Leary as the Justice of the Peace. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. I'm Lois Lane. I'm a reporter on the Metropolis Daily Planet. This is my own story. To me, it's a pretty important story. But certain men don't always agree with me. For instance... Well, Miss Lane, don't you knock before opening doors? Please, Chief, I simply have to see you. Well, you can see me later. I have a very important business conference scheduled here. Uh, didn't Superman promise to be here at 2 o'clock sharp? Yes, and it's exactly two minutes of. Mine must be running fast. I'll have it looked into. Lois, I told you you could see me later. I'm not taking any chances on your getting away without my seeing you. I'll wait. <laughs> Very well. Probably if you just sit there quietly, you can take notes on the conference. Uh, you know Inspector Anderson, of course. Oh, yes, of course. We're old friends, and good ones, I hope. And Mr. Faraday, the public defender? And how do you do, Miss Lane? Mr. Faraday. Superman! Good afternoon, gentlemen. I understand you wish to see me about something very important. Most important. We're talking about forming a citizens' committee. When there's a series of bank robberies and not a single person arrested... Now, wait a minute, Mr. White. I've got a dozen of those thugs locked up already. Mr. Faraday, I believe you represent most of these people in court. As public defender, that's my job, Superman. But I don't like crime any better than you do. Of course not. Faraday's helping the authorities. But Inspector Henderson here keeps missing my point. We all know that these robberies are planned and synchronized by one person or a group of persons. And that's who I want to see locked up. Yeah, the man behind all this. I know. No, sir, you don't know. Neither do I, and neither does anybody else. That's just the trouble. Who is it? Excuse me, Mr. Faraday, but uh, about these thugs already locked up, don't any of them know who they work for? Well, uh, ethically, I shouldn't answer that, but since the answer is no, it doesn't make any difference. They haven't the slightest idea who the big man is. Neither have I. Neither have I. Well, I admit, I'd like to know myself. So, gentlemen, I can assure you of my full help and cooperation. Good. Now we'll get somewhere. Thank you very much, Superman. A pleasure to be of service. Thank you. I knew you'd help us, and I'm going to have Clark Kent work right along with you. Yes, I may find him useful. You know, I tried to have Kent here at this meeting today, but he claimed he had an important engagement with some men. What he's possibly doing is wasting a lot of time talking to a lot of important loafers. Well, no, I wouldn't exactly say that, Mr. White. Well, I'll get him on the ball. Henderson, I'm going downtown with you to see the mayor. Thanks again, Superman. Again, my pleasure, sir. Chief, Chief, I've got to see you before you go. Lois, I'm very busy right now. But I've been trying to catch you all day. Chief, I need help. Now, now, listen to It's me. more work than I can do. I just can't handle it all alone. Well, the letters are getting deeper and deeper on my desk. What seems to be the trouble? Perhaps I can be of assistance. If there's anything you need from the police department, is there anything I can do, Miss Lane? Oh, thank you all so much. It's very important, this work I'm doing. We receive nearly a thousand letters a day, and I have to answer each one. What's this? Complaints about the crime situation? The love situation. <laughs> You see, the regular woman's page editor is on vacation, and the chief made me take over her advice to the Lovelorn column. 
Well, it's really nothing to laugh about. It's very important work. Oh, I'm sure it is, and I'm sure you're well qualified in the field, Miss Lane. Thank you, Mr. Faraday. Although I'm afraid I haven't been very successful so far, personally. But, oh, Superman, if you just help me for a few minutes, why, that's all it would take for you to read those thousands of letters. People just don't realize how many girls are carrying torches and how many girls want to get married, but the men don't pay any attention. Or just listen to this letter from a uh, sign sometimes made. I'm awfully sorry, Miss Lane, but some other time, perhaps. But, Superman, aren't you even interested in love? Now, Miss Lane, really. I think I'd better be going. I'll see you later, gentlemen. Oh, Superman! Now, Lois, just what is the idea of breaking in here like this? I'm sorry, Chief. I'm all upset, I guess. You have no idea how it makes a girl feel reading all these letters. Well, the idea of asking Superman to waste his time with a thing like that is ridiculous. I'm sorry, Chief. All right, I'll have someone help you later in the week. Thank you. But just remember, this is a newspaper, not a Lonely Hearts column. Excuse me. <laughs> I wonder why she never got married. Search me. Attractive girl, too. A red carnation is found on her desk. Cup reporter Jimmy Olsen believes that the cleaning woman left it for Lois. Is this the hearts and flowers department? Yes, it is. And if you were a real friend, you'd help me answer some of this mail. Well, I'm sorry, Lois, but I promised the chief to help Superman with a crime thing. I should be down at headquarters right now. Crime? I suppose you couldn't stand to read a love letter. Well, it is a little out of my line. Clark, do you know this is springtime? Does spring mean anything to you? Well, baseball? I thought so. Do you think spring means anything to Superman? I doubt if Superman has any time for baseball right now. Oh, you... Boy, will you be sick of love when you get through reading these? Just wait till you fall in love someday. I can wait. Never mind. Put these letters all back in the sack and take them down in my car. I'm going to read every single one if I have to sit up all night to do it. Lois is up late wondering where the man of her dreams is as she reads various letters from broken-hearted women. She awakens the next morning to find some flowers awaiting her at her apartment door. She reads the card that came with them. The person who wrote it apologizes for being so busy with the recent crime wave. Once he is free, he wants to go out on a date to ask Lois an important question. The note is signed by Superman. Morning mail, Miss Lane. Wow, look at you. Thanks, Jimmy. Get all this stuff off my desk. Huh? You heard me. Oh, Clark! Good morning. Say, Clark, I want to get a rundown on that crime situation. I'm going to get it solved if I have to do it myself. And I'm going to solve it in a hurry, too. Just beautiful. What? Oh, I I'm sorry, Lois. I didn't hear what you said. Can't you even pay attention to me? That's just what I was doing. And you look very pretty this morning. Uh, Lois Lane speaking. Lois, I have a couple of passes to the ball game, and I thought maybe this afternoon if you weren't... What? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I said my name is sometimes Mabel. I mean, that's how I've been signing my letters to you. On account of sometimes he loves me and sometimes he doesn't. Oh, the, the love Lauren letters, yes. Um, sorry, I'm very busy with something else right now. Oh, you give me such sweet advice, honey. I can't ever thank you enough. I mean, it's not your fault he keeps on being a heel, is it? Please, can't you wait? What? Oh, no. No, I can't wait. It's the hour of decision, and here I am at, at Poole's Jewelry Store. You know why? Because if I didn't return his ring, his thugs would rub me out. So back it goes for the seventh time. The big crook, I hate him. 
Hate who? What are you... What? Why, of course I'd appreciate a tip. Um, Clark, shut the door on your way out. You too, Jimmy. Oh, well, sure, Lois. Now go on, Mabel. You wanted to tell me about this man of yours. Well, he's the man behind the crime situation, that's what. What's his name? Who? Oh, no. Now stay right there, Mabel. I want to come down and get the story. And when he's locked up, I'll testify plenty. I'll show him he can't make me give my rings back. You find the phone all right, miss? Here, what are you doing? Hello? Jimmy, I tell the chief to hold the front page. I just got the answer he's been looking for. What? You heard me. And tell him this is one story I'm going to phone in. Because after that, I'm going to get dressed for a date with Superman. Does she make sense to you? I think I'd better follow her, Jimmy. Put them in the car. And tell Hank if he loses them, he better lose himself, too. All right, you two. Let's get home. But... <laughs> Lois has entered pools to only find a slit of stick dynamite. Having followed her as Clark Kent, Superman takes the brunt of the explosion and shields her from the thug's bullets as they drive away in a black sedan. Superman. I hope the flowers are the right color, Miss Lane. Oh, I love them. Did you find the carnation I left on your desk? Was that from you, too? Superman, why haven't you told me these things before? Well, I've wanted to for years, Miss Lane, but I've always been so busy. Yes, I know. Shouldn't you be finding out who's responsible for the dynamite? Well, they're only hired thugs, why bother about them? Um, I wish you'd call me Lois sometime. Can I call you Lois now? What'd you say? I said no. Excuse me. What was that? Oh, just the usual hired thugs and the usual powerful black sedan. But never mind about them. I'll get them later. Are you all right? I'm all right. In your note, in the flowers, you said there was something you wanted to ask me? Yes, there was. What's going on here? I was cruising by in my car and I heard all the shooting. It's quite all right, Inspector. Miss Lane is unharmed. Well, I'm certainly glad to hear that. Inspector, uh, could you manage to keep the crowd of curiosity seekers out of here? Well, I've already told my officers to do that. Would you mind helping them personally, Inspector? Well, I... You see... We'd like to be alone for a little while. Oh. Oh, I... I see. Now, what was it you were going to ask me? I'm not very good with words, Miss Lane. Lois. Lois. But... Excuse me. It'll probably be a little expensive, but it's worth it. What are you doing? Squeezing the little diamonds into one big one. See? Now, what I wanted to ask you was, will you marry me? Plans are being made for Lois and Superman's wedding, 
Meanwhile, Clark Kent has just been given the shock of his life. Hello, Lois. My, you're looking prettier than ever today. Thank you. Um, Clark, I want to be the first to tell you something. Oh, did the chief give you a raise? <laughs> Superman and I are going to be married. Yes, I know. Well, how do you know? Well, I just... Never mind, Lois. But I want you to know I'm just as happy about it as Superman is. Thank you. Anyway, there's something else. I told Superman that if he didn't mind, I'd like to pick out the best man for the wedding. Yes, I'm sure you assumed you'd pick the chief. Oh, no. The chief's giving me away. Oh, I never thought of that. So, Clark, would you be best man? Me? Be best... You mean stand up beside Superman at the wedding? Well, sure, that's what a best... No, Lois, I, I, I can't do that. What? I, I can't be best man. Look, Lois, I'm terribly sorry. You'll have to get somebody else. I just can't manage it. But I'll, I'll, go, I'll see you later. At the same time, Mr. Faraday has figured that after their nuptials, Lois will reveal that she knows who is behind the crime wave. That dame he's gonna marry knows who you are, Mr. Faraday. You know what's gonna happen? The minute that wedding's over and she gets down out of them clouds, she'll remember. She'll say, Superman, darling, I know who the big boss behind this crime situation is. Arrest Mr. Faraday. <laughs> Don't be stupid. Miss Lane is not going to marry Superman. Huh? She's going to marry me. And a wife can't be forced to testify against her husband. <laughs> Pretty smart, boss. Pretty smart. Faraday's thug, disguised as a color consultant at the beauty parlor where Lois is getting her hair styled, has suggested that she use an Edelweiss flower to compliment her wedding attire. The plant only grows in the Swiss Alps, and Superman will be occupied in finding it, allowing Faraday to proceed with his evil plan to marry Lois. Oh, my dear Lois, I'm so happy you've consented to be my bride. Me? Your bride? Yes, my dear, and this nice gentleman will perform the ceremony. Why, you must be crazy. I have no... Now, uh, shall we get on with the ceremony? Mr. Faraday, you're supposed to be the public defender. Now, my dear, time enough for conversation later. Hear that, boss? That's Superman. So soon? Quick, out of here. Well, this is most peculiar, Miss Lane. And I must say, I don't like the looks of your fiancé. I don't like his looks either, but he isn't my fiancé. This is. Here you are, darling. My word. Am I to have the pleasure of performing the ceremony? Yes, you are, sir. Do you know where the Daily Planet building is? Yes. Well, can you be in Mr. White's office just a little before 7? I'll be there. Thank you, sir. And at 7 o'clock, you and I will be man and wife. I don't know. Well, what's the matter, darling? Oh, it's Clark. I keep thinking about him. As a matter of fact, so do I. No, I mean, what if after we're married, I discover it's Clark I really love? Well, now, that could happen. What am I going to do? Lois, you're never going to worry about that again. I'm going to tell you a secret, and it's going to have to remain our secret forever. But Clark Kent and I are one and the same person. You? Both? Oh, Clark. Oh, Superman. I mean, darling. <laughs> Now there's nothing that can stand in our way. Faraday has another evil plot to eliminate Lois. A time bomb covered in lead foil is hidden in a wedding cake. It is set to go off at the same hour which Lois and Superman's marriage ceremony begins. Should the explosive work, none of the Man of Steel's friends will survive to prevent Faraday from becoming the biggest crime boss of Metropolis. As the time bomb ticks during her wedding with Superman, the alarm clock rings in Lois' bedroom. 
those letters doing on my bed? I'm sorry to come by so early, but we want you to go with us and cover this story from a woman's angle. What? Who? The arrest, the bank robber ring. Yes, I remember. Mr. Faraday, you're a criminal. Huh? You're going to prison. Mabel told me. Oh, now, don't be silly. But you haven't heard. Last night, Superman rounded up the real men behind all the crime in Metropolis, a bunch you never heard of. But he was with me. I don't understand. Well, now, you've been working too hard. Now, you hurry. We'll wait for you. Oh, Chief, I'm sorry I'm late. Oh, oh Superman, darling. Lois, be careful. My glasses. Lois, what's the matter with you? Wake up. Wake up? Clark, you and I... I mean, isn't any of it true? Hmm? Aren't you even Superman? Lois, do you feel all right? Not. I'll be ready in a moment. Hey, Miss Lane. A messenger boy just brought these flowers to the office for you, so I, uh, I thought I'd bring them by to you. Give them to someone else. Take them to a hospital, anything. Don't give them to me. You mean you, you don't want them? Why on earth not? I just couldn't stand to know who sent them. All right. One thing I want to get off my chest right away here is that this is not a favorite episode of mine. Although I do understand that it's Noel Neal's favorite episode. And from that perspective, it's very easy to see why. As this was one of the few episodes, really, in which the adventures of Superman treated Lois Lane as an actual woman. As opposed to an object that Superman has to save all the time. The play of this episode had to be a rare treat for Noel Neal. However, my one... I guess wish for this episode was maybe that it was written by a woman. You know, because a lot of this definitely does reek of 1950s men trying to understand what women want. And some of the characterizations of Lois probably fail for that reason. So, let's get into this, shall we? The episode starts with Lois Lane basically talking directly to us, the viewer. One of the few times uh, a character in this show will break the fourth wall. Most recently, Perry did it in the magic necklace and especially early on in the series clark was definitely known for breaking the fourth wall when he'd wink at the camera and uh you know kind of talk to us the viewer at first in the show he was really the only person who got to do that but they're letting other members of the cast do it from time to time here and since this is lois's story we're starting off with lois talking directly into the camera lois basically reveals that the men think her story is relatively unimportant and like i mentioned before this show is Really not focused on Lois as a person and more as a character at the planet who happens to be a woman. The only time they ever really acknowledge Lois as a woman is when he, somebody wants to take a cheap shot at a, at a woman. Usually Perry. They're talking about how women are hung up on clothes and stuff like that. You know, and the one thing this show never addresses is matters of the heart. To my knowledge, this is the only time, especially regarding Lois's feelings for Superman. They're only even broached one more time. In the season 6 episode, Superman's Wife, where Superman fakes a marriage to a very pretty policewoman to flush out some criminals. You see, in that episode, by Lois's sadness about Superman getting married, that 
she still has feelings for him. Like I said, the men are believing Lois' story is unimportant here. And she goes into Perry's office. She is in a hurry to see him because she's got a bunch of letters in her hand. And honestly, she's being treated rather rudely by Perry as Superman shows up. As we know from the synopsis that the bulk of this episode is a dream that Lois is having. So you want to pay attention to how the men are acting in the real world and in the dream. In the real world here, they're very dismissive of the job she's doing. They even laugh at her when she mentions that she's dealing with the love situation. So this meeting is about fighting some bank robber ring in Metropolis that we really never see anything dealt with. But this is where we meet Mr. Faraday, who's a public defender. And this is kind of going to set up him being the crime boss in her dream. Lois is overwhelmed by the amount of letters that are coming in for the Lovelorn column. And like I mentioned before, the men aren't taking her concerns very seriously. She even begs Superman for help, but he declines. And uh, she asks Superman if he's interested in love and he runs off, which is kind of par for the course in this series. Those of you who remember Around the World with Superman, Lois uh, looks very uh, enviously at the Carson family, which had been reunited. And she looks towards Superman, who runs off. So that's kind of the way Superman treats love in this series. I think Lois possibly feels unqualified for the job she's doing because she has been very successful in love herself. And there are problems with this assignment. She has to read and answer every letter. That's a monumental task. And I assume this is the kind of column where people write in and the columnist chooses a few and responds. And I am sure a lot of these letters cover the same themes, but to expect anyone to handle this kind of volume was just insane. I mean, look at the size of the stacks of mail Jimmy brings into Lois' office. I understand the regular person being on vacation, but couldn't she uh, do an advanced column or a couple of advanced columns, work ahead a little bit? So Perry promises Lois some help, and after she leaves, Faraday asks why Lois never got married, and Henderson points out how attractive Lois is, almost as if he's noticing her as a woman for the first time. And speaking of the men behaving poorly, here comes Clark into Lois' office to act like an ass. He won't help Lois with the letters, but I do like this exchange between he and Lois where she asks him about spring and what it reminds him of, and uh, he says baseball. Typical male response, I guess. And then she asks about Superman, and Clark says Superman doesn't have time for baseball right now, and I love Lois's reaction as she gets up and throws the letters at him as he runs off. There's a playfulness in this scene between George Reeves and Noel Neal that you really don't see very often in this show. And I'm also pretty sure that when I saw this episode years ago as a kid on Channel 9, that this exchange was cut out. Probably for time, as the show probably only had a 22-minute time slot, as opposed to the 26 or so minutes these episodes run on the DVD. And I think the same is definitely true of the next episode, Dagger Island, which I also saw as a kid on TV. One one Saturday, it must have been, uh, that station, Channel 9, WOR out of Secaucus, New Jersey, played a four-episode block of The Adventures of Superman, and it had the episodes I talked about last week, Jimmy the Kid and The Girl Who Hired Superman, and this episode, and Dagger Island, and I recorded them off of television. So, I noticed also with Dagger Island 2 that there were a couple of scenes that I don't necessarily remember from watching it as a kid, and they always seem unfamiliar when I see them. Lois brings the letters home, and she falls asleep, and there's a dissolve on the clock to 7 a.m., and for all we know, it's the next morning, but this is the beginning of the dream sequence, as evidenced by the fact that she kind of mentioned in the voiceover that the man of her dreams now the first time i watched this episode as a kid 
I don't think I realized it was a dream until the end. So the dream starts with Lois finding some roses marked from Superman. And Lois is in a better mood. And if you know this is a dream, you can see the difference in how everyone is acting as both Jimmy and Clark notice how radiant Lois is feeling today. Clark is staring at her, noticing how pretty she is. And while Lois is taking a phone call, Clark is trying to ask her to a ball game. So right now, in this dream sequence, basically all the men are attracted to Lois and trying to take her out on a date. But Lois is apparently trying to solve the crime wave so that she and Superman can go out on their date. She gets a call from one of her letter writers, who is apparently romantically involved with the crime boss Superman and Perry are looking for. And if you don't recognize the voice after the phone call, it's Mr. Faraday, the public defender. So when Lois leaves the office, Clark follows her, which is normal if he thinks she's in trouble. But we're going to find out later what Lois actually knows about Superman and Clark, at least subconsciously. And remember, this is Lois's dream, and even in her dream, we see Clark run off to change into Superman. We know from our viewing of most of the episodes in this series that Lois does suspect the truth about Clark, but does she subconsciously know? Sure looks like it, doesn't it? And again, we have more of the men acting strangely. After Superman saves her, he's acting like he's in love with her. Well, which actually we know he is because he sent her a big thing of roses earlier. He's even putting off chasing the thugs for her. Yet he, here he is, Superman, nervously trying to ask Lois out on a date. It's so weird seeing sup- this Superman unsure about anything. So after the uh, drive-by shooting, Lois and Superman kick Henderson out of the store after he comes to check, and he's kind of disappointed, you know. He's kind of shocked that she and Superman want to be alone, and he kind of very awkwardly leaves the jewelry store. Superman is going to skip the dating portion of this relationship, and he's going to go right to the marriage proposal, which she accepts. Uh, He's rushing things a little bit, but you know what? This is only a 25 or so minute episode. And Lois, of course, accepts. Now Lois and Jimmy are excited about Lois' engagement to Superman, Henderson is not because, well, I guess he doesn't want to see her go off the market. Lois considers that sweet. I'm not exactly sure how it's sweet, but I guess she likes the fact that all the men seem to be in love with her during her dream. And everyone is putting off the crooks for the wedding. First, Superman didn't chase the crooks in the black sedan, and now, uh, basically Perry says, blast the crooks, we got a wedding to deal with. So, now we get another scene with Lois and Clark, and he's all smiles, and he tells Lois that he's just as happy as Superman is, and... He's continuing to beam. Another clue. She wants Clark to be the best man at the wedding, and apparently he freaks out and leaves the office. More and more clues about what Lois Lane and her subconscious mind might know about Superman. So, obviously Superman's marriage is from page news. Being that this is a dream, we're not held to the usual natural laws of newspapering. Not that this show really adhered to the natural laws of newspapering either anyway. The planet can put out an addition every 25 seconds in her dream if she needs it to, and we've seen before that the planet can put out an addition every 25 seconds because the plot needs it to, so really nothing has changed in Lois' dream as far as the frequency of the Daily Planet publication goes. So apparently Lois knows Faraday is the big boss, and Faraday's plan is to marry Lois so that she can't testify against. And here is the henchman. He's going to have Lois send Superman to get Edelweiss, a flower that only grows in Switzerland, which will give Faraday a chance to marry. Now... If you watch this scene closely, apparently the criminals aren't very smart in Lois' dream as he leaves to get the Justice of the Peace after Superman leaves. Perhaps he should have gotten the Justice of the Peace earlier and had him with him. Now, for those of you who don't really know anything about Edelweiss, it's uh, one of the most endangered plants in the world and it's been illegal to pick or destroy since the 1880s and if you just look up Edelweiss on Wikipedia, you'll see that there's a whole laundry list of countries in which Edelweiss is protected. 
places like Switzerland, Italy, India. I don't believe that it grows anywhere in the, in the United States, but I'm not entirely sure about that. And if it, if it does and it's protected here, it won't be for long. But that's neither here nor there. So, but anyway, it's a dream, so the natural laws don't apply. So Superman comes back with the flower, and Faraday's judge doesn't like the look of him. Faraday is pretty shocked at how quickly Superman is back. I don't know exactly know how he would have gotten Lois to marry him. Was he going to force her to do it right there in the beauty parlor? So, the Justice of the Peace doesn't like the look of Faraday, and all of a sudden he, he discovers that he's going to marry Lois to Superman, and you know he's all about that, and he agrees to meet them back at Perry White's office at 7. That's the only set big enough for the wedding of Superman. So now Lois is talking to Superman about Clark, and she asks him a question. What if she realized after they're married that he's the one she really loves? And that's when Superman tells her that he and Clark are one and the same. And if her dream is telling her that, then it must be pretty well ingrained in her head that Clark Kent is Superman. At least on a subconscious level. So, with his Justice of the Peace plan foiled, Faraday is going to make an explosive wedding cake, but it's lined with lead. And it's a good thing no one was going to eat this thing. Who wants to ingest a cake lined with lead? I don't. Do you? And it's 7 p.m., and when the timer on the bomb goes off next to the cake, Lois's alarm goes off as she wakes up. And if you listen closely, as she's waking up, she's saying her wedding vows to Superman. But we're also hearing on the doorbell ringing. Good morning, Lois. Here are Perry and Faraday. Lois is confused, and she thinks Faraday's a crook because the dream was so real to her that she's kind of still kind of in a fog trying to separate fact from fiction here, and then... If the Clark comes in, Lois goes after him, calling him Superman, honey, trying to hug him and knocking off his glasses, and he denies that ever that he's Superman. And after Perry says, "Wake up," that's when Lois kind of realizes that it was all a dream. And Jimmy comes up with flowers. And my first question is, why are they all at our apartment so early? Jesus, my God, it's seven a.m. These people need to call her on the phone or something. But she refuses the flowers because she couldn't stand to know who sent them. You know. I don't think she wants to confirm that they're not from Superman. You can see that the dream threw her for a loop and reminded her of her failures in love and reality. And these are weighing heavily on on her. So she's pretty depressed as this episode fades to black. And so many of these episodes I've described as a live action Jimmy Olsen comic. This one is a live action Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane comic. Granted, this episode doesn't do the characters any favors even before the dream sequence. But it was nice to see that... <clears throat> the producers of the show and the writers decided to pay at least lip service to Lois Lane's feelings for Superman. And like I said, it's easy to understand why this is Nolan Neal's favorite episode. She got to play Lois as a woman and not just a plot device. Someone Superman has to save and she got to show that she can do some acting. And this is probably one of her better performances in the series, regardless of whether I like this particular episode or not. And... George Reeves did it, did well in this too. His Superman has never looked so uncomfortable as he did in the jewelry store confessing his feelings to Lois. Yeah. Love this episode or not, it's easy to see that the actors brought their A-game. Gotta give a props for that. This At this point, this really was a kid's show, so it was probably difficult to discuss matters of the heart on this show. So, With that being said, I think that's about all I've got for this particular episode. I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo, then I'm going to come back with Dagger Island. Hang around, folks. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes. 
or crossover events that can cost a hundred bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, welcome back, folks. We head right into Dagger Island. Original broadcast date was May 19th, 1956. Writer was Robert Leslie Bellum. Director was Phil Ford. Guest cast included Dean Cromer as Mickey, Myron Healy as Paul, Ray Montgomery as Jeff, and Raymond Hatton as Jonathan Skagg and James Graymore. Now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Taxi driver Mickey, college instructor Jeff, and self-described playboy Paul have not seen their cousin, the late James Craymore, in nearly 20 years because he most likely did not approve of their lifestyles. Now they are in the office of the state's executor, Daily Planet editor Perry White, for the reading of Craymore's last will and testament. Well, I suppose you all know why we're here. Sure, we're here to hear the reading of the will of our late lamented cousin, the famous and rich James Craymore, whom none of us have seen in over 20 years. Well, that's probably because we all realized he didn't much approve of any of us. Mickey, a lowly cab driver. What's the matter with driving a cab? Nothing. Jeff, an underpaid college instructor. Underpaid, yes, but at least respectable. And yours truly, Paul Craymore. I guess I might be called a playboy of sorts. Nevertheless, as executor of Mr. Craymore's estate, it is my duty to call you together for the reading of his will. I thought a lawyer usually did that, not a newspaper editor. In my youth, I took a degree in law, though I never practiced. What do you do, leave it to some home for homeless cats? He left all his money, one million dollars worth of perfect diamonds, to one of four persons, you three, and a cousin named Jonathan Skagg. Jonathan Skagg? Well, the Skaggs are another branch of the family, but I never heard of anybody named Jonathan. That's not surprising. He's a hermit. He spent all his adult life on Dagger Island. Where's that? Dagger Island is where the diamonds are buried. And the terms of the will are that all of the clues shall be given to each of the four heirs so that each one shall have an equal chance to become sole heir to one million dollars. Boy, what I wouldn't do for a million dollars. Now, the clues will be read to you one week from today on Dagger Island. You mean we got to go to this Dagger Island? Where's it at? In the Caribbean. It's a small tropical island, about 10 miles square. I understand the climate is delightful. Well, how do we get there? Transportation has been arranged. You'll go in a body. Ooh, I don't like that word, body. <laughs> Just who's supposed to give us these clues, Mr. White? Uh, a little green man from Mars? No, as a matter of fact, Miss Lane here has the clues in a sealed envelope. She and Clark Kent, another reporter in this newspaper, have been named umpires in Mr. Cremore's will. Well, uh, where is this Clark Kent? He's on an out-of-town assignment. He couldn't get back in time for today's meeting. He'll be here in time to leave with you all next Thursday. He and Miss Lane have been named as absolute umpires in the treasure hunt. They will have the authority to disqualify any of the heirs who takes advantage of the others in an unsportsmanlike or dishonest way. Well, he sounds like a very important man. 
I look forward to meeting this Mr. Kent. Someone mentioned my name? Clark, you can't possibly be back. Why, you are miles away. Yeah, Mr. Kent, how could you have gotten back? Well, this is a modern age, children, haven't you heard? I flew. Uh, Kent, these are the Cremor heirs, with the exception of Jonathan Skagg. Gentlemen. You're familiar with the situation, I believe. Oh, completely, sir. Chief, I'll bet you a million dollars this will be a very interesting trip. As Lois is on the telephone with Clark, a mysterious individual has entered her office. He has placed a handkerchief with chloroform on her mouth and a cyanide gas bomb on her desk. Clark rushes to the rescue of Superman, and the Man of Steel inhales the deadly vapors, saving Lois from certain death. However, after Superman leaves, Lois notices something. you get back here so fast? Well, what do you mean? Golly, Miss Lane, what's the matter? Oh, a little rocky, I guess. Somebody just tried to kill me. What? They tried to... Great Caesar's ghost, who tried to kill you? Well, whoever it was didn't leave his calling card, but he did take something. The envelope with the clues to the treasure hunt. Well, obviously, it was one of the three cousins. He wanted to steal the clues and beat the others to the treasure. There's just one thing. Actually, he hasn't got the clues. The envelope and my purse were just full of blank paper. But the real envelope is in the office safe. How did you know? It figures. One thing we know for sure, we will have a killer with us on Dagger Island. Our intrepid group has arrived on Dagger Island only to be greeted by a bullet fired from Jonathan Skagg's shotgun as they approach his hut. Now get out of here. You and I are your kitten boodle. Hey, now, just a minute. Now, don't get smart for me, young feller. Are you Jonathan Skagg? Yeah. And I don't allow no trespassing on Dagger Island. This is private property. It belongs to old man Kramar. Not anymore, it doesn't. Not since he died. Kramar dead? He was just here in his yacht a month ago. I bet that's when he buried his diamonds. Diamonds? <laughs> I never seen him bury any diamonds. I'm sure glad to hear that. Otherwise, you just might have gotten an idea about digging them up for yourself. Why, you miserable. Excuse me, Mr. Skagg. Uh, if I could have a word with you in private, I'd like to explain what we're doing here on your island. Yeah. But he is eventually pacified by Clark Kent. With Skagg calm, the hunt for James Cranmore's diamonds can begin in the morning. However, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Clark cannot help but wonder if the person who attacked Lois will strike again. Lois awakens to find that all the camp's water, even what was in the barrels belonging to Skag, is gone. Clark! Now what? These are empty. Sure? Oh, fine. And our boat won't be back for a week. We'd have to be camels to last that long without water. Whoever did this, Jimmy, didn't plan on our lasting. He wants all that treasure for himself. Well, much good will do him without water. Well, I'm sure that he has plenty for himself, whoever he is. Cheapers, if we could only get word to Superman. Connie, on Dagger Island, you can't get word to nobody. Superman or nobody else. You know, all of our water comes in from the mainland. And it's gone. But you know, there just might be some water over at the ruins. Ruins? Where? Well, that's that old Spanish fort across the island. It's right down there at the head of the path. And uh, sometimes there's some rainwater collects between the two walls. But you can't get to it because it's too steep and narrow. 
Sounds like it's worth investigating. I think I'll take a look at that old fort. I'll, I'll go with you, you, Mr. Kerr. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. But, uh, you know, exercise increases your thirst. But it conserve your energies. Excuse me. This information allows Superman to dig a new spring from there to a point 100 yards away without anyone seeing it. By the way, where's Mr. Kent? He ought to be back by now. Probably off drinking some of that water he filched from the rest of us. Not quite accurate, Jeff. I did find some water, however. Water? That's right. Where'd you find it? By the fort? No, Lois. I found a nice, fresh spring in a little clearing, oh, about 100 yards from here. You said there wasn't any water on this island. Listen, I know Dagger Island like the back of my hand. And there is no fresh water on the island. Well, I'm afraid that you better take another look at the back of your hand and then go take a look at the spring. What? It's true, water. I can't believe it. It popped up all by itself, sudden-like. Or as though uh, Superman had decided to be of some help? I'm afraid you're incurably romantic, Lois. Let's just be grateful that I have to stumble on the spring. I'm grateful, all right, but there's just one thing. Now we'll never know who destroyed our water supply. Even if it was you, aren't you? Or Mickey. Or Cousin Skag. He lives on this joint, and he didn't even tell us about the spring. I never knew it was here before. Nice bunch of relatives I got. Well, I say let's fill the cask and get on with the treasure hunt. I need the money. And I say you're absolutely right. Lois, I believe you have the sealed envelope. Oh, I hid the real one. I left it in the coffee pot back at camp. Thought if we didn't have any water, nobody'd bother the pot. Smart girl. <laughs> Here we go. The clues... Apparently, they're in verse. You figure them out for the prize of one million dollars in diamonds. Okay, okay. Let's start with a poetry reading. Thank you. My arm is steady, my hand is calm. To find my treasure, look for my palm. Is that all? Maybe that's enough. Hey, sport, you live on this island. Has it got anything in the shape of a guy's hand? You know, like, like this. Don't be ridiculous. It has nothing to do with the shape of your palm. It has to do with a palm tree. Oh, that's a big help. There's probably a zillion palm trees on this island. There's more, if you care to listen. It's 20 feet from base to treasure on a line as straight as the eye can measure. Well, that's interesting, but as Miss Lane pointed out, which palm? <clears throat> and, Mom... Am I allowed to help? Why, of course, Jimmy. Well, uh, I remember reading once about a certain kind of palm that the old uh, pirates and explorers used to call the uh, captain's palm. Well, what about it? Well, um, since Mr. Cramore wrote the clues, wouldn't you call him the captain? How do you distinguish between this captain's palm and any other palm? Well, it's, uh, it's an albino palm, uh, a freak of nature. A white palm. Mr. Skagg, is there any such palm on this island? Yep. Yep. There is. Well, where is it, sir? <laughs> I ain't telling. I know where it is. That gives me an edge on the rest of you. Don't be goofy, cousin. You might as well tell us and save us the time, because we just won't let you out of our sight. He's right, Skagg. Well, <laughs> I reckon so. <laughs> However, the third and final enigma tells the Kramers to choose where to find the diamonds. By golly, there is such a thing. And somewhere around here, there's a million dollars. Now, wait a minute, there's one more verse. The line is straight, but in which direction? The answer is up to your own selection. But I don't get it. 
course, I don't like poetry much, no how. Personally, I'm going to dig. Well, luckily, the sand's only a couple of feet deep. Can't dig beyond that. It's solid rock. You know, uh, there's something fishy about this whole thing. Why do you say that, Jim? Well, this business about the captain's palm, the albino tree. But you said you read about it. I know, but I, uh, I made it all up in my head. You did what? Why? Well, I don't know. I guess I just wanted to get the ball rolling. But, Jim, there it is, big as life. White palm tree. Yeah. Mickey has a small bag in his hand. He shouts a victory and makes, and makes everyone believe that he has found James Kramer's diamonds. However, his refusal to show them and give Jimmy an interview makes the rest of the group, especially Jonathan Skaggs, suspicious. Jeff knocks out Mickey and chases Jimmy into the Spanish Fort's ruins, believing that his cousin gave him the diamonds. Mickey, in fact, never had them. He merely pretended to find them to eliminate the comp competition. Unfortunately, this doesn't change the fact that Jimmy is in grave danger. While hidden, Superman uses the heat of his X-ray vision to burn a cannonball in Jeff's hands. The greedy Kramer cousin stops attacking Jimmy. Later. Okay, so I tried to pull the fast one and it didn't work out. I'd still like to find a joker who conked me. I know what you mean. I knew he didn't find them diamonds. How did you know? Oh, I just figured. Well, anyway, I guess we better start digging again. I don't think that'll be necessary. You see, uh, I have a pretty good hunch where those diamonds are. What? You do? Uh, no, 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 wait just a minute. If I point out the exact spot, do I win? That's right. According to the rules, if you find the diamonds, you win the treasure. Okay. I all remember the part of the verse that goes, the line is straight, but in which direction? The choice is up to your own selection. So? What about it? I say they're 20 feet straight up, in that single white coconut and the white palm. Keep us all climb up and get up. Now wait. I'll save you the trouble. Well, I'll be hanged. So they was there. You should know. You put them there, Mr. Craymore. Oh. So you know who I am, huh? That's right. How'd you get it? Well, let's just say that I'm pretty good at seeing through things. Yeah? <laughs> well, I've played my little game. The fact of the matter is that I painted that palm tree white myself. But that doesn't change the rules of the treasure hunt. You solved the riddle, so therefore you're entitled to the treasure. Well, thank you very much, sir, but uh, these will bring a lot more than I need right now, so if you don't mind, I, I think I'll share them with the others. So that's the reason I set up the deal. I wanted to find out how you all would react. Who was a coward? Who was brave? Who was selfish? And who was generous? And who was a dangerous criminal? That's the one you won't have to bother giving a share of those diamonds to. We'll have no use for them in prison. Prison? For what? For what? For trying to hurt Lois and Jimmy, for draining our water supply, and for hitting you on the head. Who do you think it might be? By the simple process of elimination, there are only two suspects left. Myself and Clark Kent. Nice try, Jeff, but of course I happen to know that I'm not the guilty party. You'll have a sweet time trying to prove that I am. Oh, I don't know. According to Jimmy, the man who tried to kill him should have blisters on his palms. Not a blister. How about you, Jeff? Still able to hold a gun. Well, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You're in enough trouble as it is. But those bullets didn't even hurt you. Well, you must Fortunately, be... last night I took the liberty of removing the slugs from his cartridges. He was only shooting blanks, but it was enough to convict him. I might have known you wouldn't walk into a loaded gun. But you know what's really amazing? 
We actually got through this whole thing without any help from Superman. If you only knew, Jimmy. If you only knew. All right. Like I mentioned before, this is an episode that I had seen quite a bit as I recorded a two-hour block off WWOR Channel 9 when I was a kid. So this was an episode that I was more familiar with coming into this podcast when compared to some of the others. And I've always remembered that I kind of like this episode. I mean, it's okay. It is by no means a great episode, but it's not terrible either. Nothing really earth-shattering about it. It's just a decent outing. The episode starts with Perry White reading the will of James Craymore. And I'm glad that Mickey points out that a lawyer normally does this, not a newspaper editor. But, you know, Perry says that he took a decree in law so he could do it. Uh, Of course he did. Perry also took a degree in law in his youth because the plot needed him to have taken a degree in law. Because the plot demands it and Perry's office is the biggest that we have, Perry's reading the will. And apparently uh, Mr. Craymore left a million dollars of perfect diamonds to four people. These three cousins, Mickey, Jeff, and Paul, and another cousin named Jonathan Skagg. That interestingly enough, none of them have heard of. Perry says that's not surprising because Skagg is a hermit. But you would think that at least one person would have at least known of his existence. I'm not sure why any one person would want to spend his entire adult life on Dagger Island. But Skag's reasons for doing what he's doing at the moment are neither here nor there. They are all going to have to go to Dagger Island. Apparently, Craymore has, has decided to set up a scavenger hunt to see who will be the sole heir to his diamonds. Lois and Clark are the umpires and actually have the authority to disqualify any one of the cousins for unsportsmanlike conduct. I wouldn't want to have the power to take $1 million away from somebody. You know, eventually they might want to come back for the revenge or something, and I don't think I'd be equipped for that. So Clark comes back to the office, to everybody's surprise, because they all thought he was somewhere very far away. He says it'll be an interesting trip, and the camera pans to the three cousins. It starts with Jeff, slowly goes over to Mickey, and then back down to Paul. You know, this is giving us the idea that one of these three people are going to be up to some funny business when we get to Dagger Island. But actually, it's not going to take very long for the funny business to begin, as Lois has taken a call from Clark about how the reservations for Dagger Island are made, and she's knocked out by someone whose face was not shown. The assailant has darker hand than anyone we've seen so far, so really this attacker could have been anyone, but this episode was shot in such a fashion that you never see the assailant's face. So obviously the episode doesn't want us to know who the assailant is just yet. They're trying to set this up as a mystery, but if you're really paying attention... And I'm going to point this out when we get to that. It's pretty easy to figure out who the guilty party is. So after he knocks out Lois from chloroform, he goes through Lois' purse, pulls out an envelope, and sets off some cyanide gas in her office. So Superman shows up. And I love these shots of Superman inhaling gas. They just seem to get better and better every time the the special effects crew does it. And after the gas is done, Superman adjusts his belt. Maybe he feels a little extra bloated after inhaling, inhaling all that cyanide. So someone tried to kill Lois. No one knows why, and Superman doesn't seem to have much interest in investigating it. Lois is okay, he just flies off. But I want you to look closely, if you have the DVD available, look closely at this scene. They moved Lois's desk. If you have the DVDs handy, go to the wedding of Superman real quick. The first scene, that's all you need. Look at the positioning of Lois's desk. It's facing toward the door, with the typewriter on the right side of the desk. Okay. Now, when you look at Dagger Island, her desk is turned from where it was, I want to say 90 degrees clockwise. And now, when she's typing on her typewriter, she's actually sitting with her back to the door. Obviously, this is done for one reason and one reason alone. The crew 
did this so that the assailant could come in without Lois's knowledge and knock her out. Because if you think about the way you would set up somebody's office, all the private offices that I've seen, the desk faces the door. So you can see who's coming in. And it also goes a little bit of a ways to being welcoming. You don't particularly want to come into an office to find somebody with their back to you. Just not a very well-designed office. So. so aside from the rearranged furniture, Superman suggests that Lois go to Perry's office because the air is clearer. I guess there are some traces of cyanide gas still left in the office. Lois is a little unsteady on her feet after her ordeal, and she decides to stay in her own office until she gets herself together. But instead of Superman helping her to Perry's office, he just leaves her there. Eesh, help the woman. But in a minute, we're going to see why he didn't. So Superman comes back, changes back to Clark. Lois finally gets to Perry's office and reports that someone tried to kill her. And obviously, Clark was in Perry's office before Lois came in. So that's probably why Superman didn't want to take Lois there himself. Once she's in Perry's office, Lois reports that someone tried to kill her. And she also reports that the assailant took what he believed were the clues to the treasure hunt. But apparently the envelope in her purse was just a decoy because she needed to have a decoy just in case something like this happened. Apparently the real clues are in the office safe. That is some good foresight on Lois's part to put a decoy of blank paper in the envelope. Some smart thinking there, Lois. Clark points out that it's most likely one of the three cousins and that they will have a killer with them on Dagger Island. And they all seem awfully calm about that. On top of not feeling very alarmed about the attempt on Lois's life. I think the Daily Planet crew should feel a little bit more worried than they are right now, but whatever. So now we're on Dagger Island. Everybody is wearing their expedition gear. And they have a few canisters of water with them. Apparently they're going to be here for a while. And then we get our first look at Jonathan Skagg. He is the elderly gentleman with a rifle firing on the crew. He is in a ratty white suit. Apparently Skagg considers himself to be the guardian of Dagger Island, which I guess is owned by James Cramore, and he denies the existence of the diamonds, just saying that he didn't see Cramore hide them. And Lois is very worried after her from her experience at the office, and she refers to Skag as awful, and although after Clark kind of allays Skag's fears, he's actually quite gracious giving Lois the cabin, and while well, he camps out outside with the men. Notice there's no tents. They've all, uh, they're all basically sleeping right under the stars there, and they wake up to find the water jugs that are empty, so they have no water, and the boat won't be back for a week. My first question was, why are they there for a week? This treasure hunt doesn't appear to take that long. It looks like they deal with it just in this one day. So what do they do for the remaining six days? Just sit there and camp? So, <clears throat> for some reason, despite being a tropical island, Dagger Island is hurting for water. If they know this, Lois probably shouldn't have been making coffee. And Skag mentions that he gets his water imported from the mainland. So... Already, Dagger Island is proving to be quite inhospitable. So, obviously, Skag wants to know who emptied the water canister, and Paul says it's one of the three cousins, and Jimmy postulates that there might be some water down there, but Paul is the playboy suggesting that Jimmy would have to dig 200 feet down. I would think the college professor would know a little bit more about geology and stuff like that, but apparently playboy Paul knows a little bit about that. So, Clark runs off, changes to Superman, and he finds something. As he first, he goes to the Spanish Ford and punches the wall, and I'm not sure if he finds anything, but maybe he sees the spring, and, and then he drilled a hole through some rock and found some water, creating a spring, and then Clark reports back. And Skag is indignant here, because he knows that there is no fresh water on Dagger Island, which, like I mentioned before, I find hard to believe in a tropical setting. But in the, And he says that he knows Dagger Island like the back of his hand, and I love Clark's quip about, 
Husky actually look at the back of his hand and then take another look at the spring. Just a great retort on Clark's part. So Lois asks if Superman helped, and Clark kind of brushes that off, which sets up the closing comment of this episode. Well, you've already heard it, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, at this point, the three cousins are all suspicious of each other, and they have pretty good reason to be. Jeff points out they'll never find out who took the water now, but meanwhile, the cousins are too busy accusing each other of wrongdoing. I guess the best thing they can do in this situation is start the treasure hunt, which, of course, is in poetic rhyme because why not? First clue. My arm is steady and my hand is calm. To find my treasure, look for my palm. And then the second clue is, it's 20 feet from base to treasure on a line as straight as the line can measure. Now, this is when Jimmy decides to come forward and he talks about how he read about a captain's palm in, a, I guess, it's a history book. The only way to tell the captain's palm for any other palm is that this is a, you know, an all-white palm tree. Apparently, Jimmy liked to read about pirate captains in his spare time. And then, there it is. A white palm tree. Have you ever seen a white palm tree? I have not. I have never seen a white palm tree. There are no white palm trees. But they get to the white palm tree, and there it is, and there's another clue. The line is straight, but in which direction? The answer is up to your own selection. And while the three cousins are trying to figure that out, Skag is really showing little to no interest in the treasure hunt, which should give us a clue to who he really is, as we're going to find out later. But this is where Jimmy mentions that he made it all up. But that doesn't make any sense. Because if Jimmy is just kind of pulling the story about the captain's palm basically out of thin air, where did this white palm tree come from? So it doesn't add up that Jimmy would just make this up and that a white palm tree would be there. It's just one of those leaps of logic that this episode takes that just doesn't really make any sense. So here's Mickey claiming to have found the diamonds and that's going to set off a, a chain of events that's going to lead us to finding the killer in this episode. As Mickey runs off in his exuberance and while... An equally exuberant Jimmy is trying to get a story. You know, Skag suggests that there's something going on, but he's not going to help. He told Lois the Clark, they're the umpires, you figure it out. Isn't Jonathan Skag talking quite a bit like somebody who made up the rules to this little treasure hunt? Sure sounds that way to me, doesn't it? So Mickey won't give Jimmy an interview. He's feeling all uh, big and powerful, and uh, he even threatens Jimmy, saying, well, because when Jimmy mentions that this interview could make his career, Mickey says that he won't have, if he keeps, up, keeps it up, he won't have anything but a past. All of a sudden, he found some diamonds, and now he's threatening people. And here's where the shenanigans have begun. Mickey ran off somewhere, hooting and hollering about finding diamonds. Jeff said he's going back to the camp, and Paul was going to go for a swim. Although Skag warned him to mine the sharks. So I don't think Paul is going into the water just yet. So after Jimmy leaves Mickey, Mickey is hit over the head by somebody. And like I mentioned, by now the cousins have split up. And you can tell by looking at the man in the mask who the guilty party is, it's Jeff. Obviously, it can't be Mickey because he's lying on the ground after getting whacked with a log. Paul's hair is a little bit lighter, so that leaves Jeff. That's the only person it could be, just based on what we know about the cu- about the cousins, because you're able to see his hair. Maybe if Jeff was wearing a hat while he was masked, it would be one thing, but that would help disguise his identity a little bit and make it not so easy to see who it is. So, But if you're paying attention... You could tell here that it's Jeff. Neither Mickey nor Jimmy have the diamonds, and much to Jeff's frustration. Jimmy drops into the fort, and you can see he was in the same area Superman was, because you can see the hole that Jimmy, that Superman punched into the wall. So Lois and Clark find Mickey, who confesses that he didn't have the diamonds. And meanwhile, Jeff is threatening Jimmy, and he's throwing cannonballs at him. He missed on the first try. That was kind of just a shot across Jimmy's bow. But Clark runs off, becomes Superman again, and using the heat of his X-ray vision on the cannonball, he causes Jeff to drop it and run off, allowing Jimmy to escape. Now, 
we're noticing here that Superman is acting very secretly. Obviously, nobody knew about Superman punching the hole in the fort wall and creating the spring. And no one's going to know about Superman using the heat the heat of his x-ray vision, or his heat vision as it's called now, to heat up the cannonball and cause the blisters on Jeff's hands. But if all Superman was going to do was stand in the woods and fire his heat vision that nobody can see, why become a Superman at all? He could have done that as Clark, but it's the adventures of Superman and not the adventures of Clark Kent, and if you're going to see super feats being done, you want to see the man in his costume. But I will say this, that if a story like this were done today and Clark needed to use his heat vision, he would do it without getting into costume. And if he needed to get into costume, everyone would know he was there. After Jimmy escapes, we go back to a scene of kind of everybody hanging around the captain's palm again. If you've got the DVDs again, kind of put them on, and I want you to take a look at Jeff. There's a difference between masked Jeff and unmasked Jeff. is his boots. Unmasked Jeff has his pant legs over his boots. So you can only see the bottoms and not the top. When he's unmasked, the pants are tucked into his boots. And notice that Jeff's hands... Never leave his pocket. The clues are there, folks. All you got to do is look for him. So Mickey confesses to pulling a fast one on the group. And Paul figures out the riddle and says that the diamonds are in the coconut and the white palm. Jimmy's eager to climb, but Skag shoots it down. And this is when Clark reveals that he knows Skag is James Cramore. Because he is very good at seeing through things. Which kind of garners a look from Lois. And then he mentions that he painted the tree white himself. Which kind of makes Jimmy's story all the more outlandish. Again, Jimmy made up the story about the captain's palm, and he said it was white. Why would Craymore paint an imaginary tree? The only thing I want to... The only possible explanation I could come up with is that while they were walking through the island, Jimmy happened to see a white palm tree. But why wouldn't anyone else have seen it? I don't know. It's one of those things that just... We're never going to have an answer for so I might as well just kind of move on and enjoy the show. I do that a lot with this series sometimes, just kind of let some of the ill logic just go, otherwise it's going to ruin your enjoyment of, of this show. So don't let it. This is a great show, regardless of the leaps in logic. So Paul shows that he is more generous than Mickey is, because he decides to share the diamonds with the others. Even Mickey, despite his shenanigans. That's when Clark says, you know what? You're only going to have to share them with one of the cousins because one of them is already old man Kramer and the and the other, well, he's going to jail for what he's done. So Jeff said that there are two suspects left, he and Clark. And apparently Jimmy has relayed the story about the hot cannonball because while Jimmy was down in the fort, we saw him touch the cannonball and just notice how hot it was. So Clark points out that whoever attacked Jimmy should have blisters on his palm. Clark has no blisters and Jeff pulls a gun. That's the first time Jeff even takes his hands out of his pockets, so... There's your answer, folks. It's Jeff. He's the bad guy. And Clark walks right into the gun, which presumably is loaded, but he reveals that he took the slugs from Jeff's cartridges. But the fact that he opened fire enough is attempted murder and enough to convict him. So, I'm willing to bet Clark is lying about having removed slugs from his cartridge. I'm pretty sure the bullets just bounced off Clark because he's Superman. And Jimmy comments as the scene that they got through the whole thing with no help from Superman. Well, how little does Jimmy know that Superman punched a hole in the spring... And he uses heat vision on the cannonball, causing Jeff to drop it and blister his hand. Like I said, not a great episode, but it is a fun episode nonetheless. I have fond memories of watching this as a kid, and I enjoyed watching it earlier today when I took my notes. So Next time, Inspector Henderson will find himself under the threat of blackmail, and then a foreign scientist will discover the deadly rock. In the meantime, if you want to send me some feedback, 
You can shoot me an email at manofscreen at gmail.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com. You can even leave some comments there if you are inclined to do so. And uh, please uh, review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. That'll help others find the show as well. And I'm also back on the Fear of the Walking Dead cast with Scott McGregor and Brian Hughes. We are currently talking about the second half of Season 7 of The Walking Dead. That can be found over at www.twotruefreaks.com. So, till next time, folks. Have a good one. Bye. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all the opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com Thanks for listening.